Hello, welcome back to another episode of Tall Hungry Girl Talks. We are in season three, uh, episode two. Um, today I am talking about psychedelic medicines as treatments for mental health issues. Um, this is an especially important topic as we enter this unknown phase of our world where you know mental health is is even more important than ever before um, and mental fitness um, I have a special guest today Dick Simon he is an entrepreneur social enterprise philanthropist and catalyst for change after September 11th Simon left the for-profit real estate development world to co-found and chair the Peace Action Network of YPO, a network of over 29,000 CEOs in more than 135 countries. Currently, Simon has been involved with organizations pursuing FDA and European Medical Association clinical trials of psychedelic medicines as treatments for mental health issues. He is working to shift public perspective and reduce stigmatization related to the use of these medicines and is also working with researchers studying psychedelic treatments for a wide range of indications as well as their possible use in conflict with resolution. Quite, quite the accomplishments. <laughs> thank, thank you so much for joining me and, and via Zoom, um, you know, the, the changing realities. Um, you know, bring us together via video. It was just going to be a phone call before. So, you know, maybe this is, this is an upgraded version of connection. So welcome to Tall Hungry Girl Talks. I appreciate having you on today. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Yes. Okay. So to set the stage regarding mental health globally, um, and I've stated these stats on my show before, but to reiterate, more than 264 million people of all ages suffer from depression, which is, that's a lot of people. Um, depression is also a leading cause of disability worldwide and is a major contributor to the overall global burden of disease. Um, so it's, it's obviously very clear that people are suffering um, around the world. And with COVID-19, these stats you know, are likely to increase. Where, how do you feel about this? Do you think psychedelics can help with this global issue that we're facing? Sure. I mean, I, I, I think that we're, the brief answer is yes, and I'll, I'll elaborate in a moment, but I think that the problem is huge. You were talking about depression, which is one really important and huge problem, but that's one of many mental health issues that people face. Yeah. The anxiety, it can be OCD, it can be uh, a number of different things, many of which uh, psychedelics have psychedelic assisted therapy um, have potential for uh, helping address. So th there are trials going on right now looking at exactly that, looking at uh, for treatment resistant depression and for major depressive disorder, the effect of psilocybin, which is the active chemical and sometimes it's something that's sometimes called magic mushrooms. Mm -hmm. And um, they're looking extremely promising. Um, so okay. I, I think it can help a lot. And I think, unfortunately, with COVID, we are very likely to see a, a tremendously increased mental health uh, uh, burden. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that when people think of psychedelics, they're... There's so much stigma around that the, the, that word. Um, you know, I think people think like, you know, a party or something like that and people taking drugs and everything like that. Um, but I understand that research with psychedelics first started in the 1950s and 60s 
but abruptly ended in the early 1970s in response to unfavorable media coverage, resulting in these, you know, these misperceptions of risk and highly restrictive regulations. What was at the root of this fear and the stoppage in research? So in a very short period of time, psychedelics went from incredibly well studied, used in all different types of therapeutic contexts for relationship issues, for other psychiatric issues, and leading therapists around the world were, were using these. It was not related to their medical use that created the issue. The, the issue sort of became when um, they began being used for personal use, recreationally, widespread, but much more than that, really, and their actual, um, what we created, you know, the war on drugs and yeah. becoming illegal was a, a conscious policy of then President Richard Nixon and uh, his domestic policy advisor, uh, John Ehrlichman, conversation in the Oval Office where they said, we've got to figure out a way, you know, we, we keep arresting the blacks and the hippies when they're protesting. And you have to remember, that was a time with a tremendous amount of turmoil. There was the war in Vietnam, there were women's rights issues, there were civil rights issues, environmental issues, and it was becoming, young people were becoming less willing to just obey whatever they were being told to do. So with all the protests, um, a lot of people were being arrested, but they would get out the next day. And the actual conversation in the Oval Office was, we've got to figure out a way of locking up the blacks and the hippies. We keep arresting them, and they get lawyers, and they get out the next day. If we make their drugs illegal, we get that on TV a lot, we can put them away for a long time, and that'll stop them. Wow. And unfortunately, uh, it was a very effective public policy, or it was a very effective policy against yeah. the public. But yeah. Like half our prison population now is somehow or another related to to drug-related offenses. Yeah. So I know that you're doing a lot of policy, a lot of work to advance, to advance policy and get these things changed. Can you talk more about it, that? Sure. So um, psychedelics are, are what are called a Schedule One drug. And a Schedule One drug means that it has uh, definite human harm and no potential medical benefit. And it's really pretty amazing that they're scheduled this way, even though there's a ton of research historically that has indicated all of the potential uh, benefits and the realized benefits. And also in terms of harm, uh, relatively speaking, they are far less dangerous than alcohol, than tobacco, than, than a host of other substances. Used responsibly, they're, you know, nothing is perfect, but, but they're pretty relatively safe, certainly in the right set setting. Mm -hmm. So uh, some of the work that yeah, my, my belief is that the best way of, of addressing this is through science and approvals. I mean, actual information. Um, so we're involved. There are trials going on with the FDA uh, for approval in a, a medical context. This will be a context where you'll be with a therapist or a pair of therapists, and you'll be taking um, for treatment-resistant depression or major depressive disorder, it would be psilocybin for post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a huge problem uh, in a range of populations. Um, you, the the uh, substance there is, is MDMA. Uh, the street name is ecstasy or molly, but the chemical substance is MDMA. Um, PTSD is, is like a great example where we have over a million veterans that are diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. A million veterans, every day, 22 veterans on average, takes their life. It is wow. more dangerous 
We lose each year to veteran suicides in the United States more people than we've lost in aggregate in the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And that's, and we're doing the best we can. The VA is doing what it can, but these therapies hold huge promise. In, in trials so far with MDMA as an example, um, a year later, 68% of the people were no longer exhibiting PTSD symptoms that, that registered on a, a scale to indicate PTSD. So that's completely unprecedented. Um, similarly with psilocybin, where there's been some end of life studies where, where people who were, got really bad diagnoses and, and had a very limited period to live, would go into existential depression. One treatment of psilocybin completely for uh, most of the people shifted their entire perspective on life and, and what was coming for them. So you don't get these kind of results or cures, but the way I'm approaching or working toward approaching policy is once these are recognized and used and helping millions of people as medicines, all of a sudden making them illegal, uh, dangerous substances just, just doesn't hold up anymore. Mm -hmm. And so is part of the work that you're doing is socializing this because it seems like it, it's like it almost needs to be socialized for the public to understand that these are drugs that can really help people. Right. And then, you know, naturally, like public pressure is put on lawmakers to change policy. Is that some of this, the work that you're doing? Right. So, so a certain degree of, of public policy is really there to protect people. Mm -hmm. I mean, trials in the FDA are to make sure that we're not having substances out there that are dangerous or don't work. So, I mean, I think a certain amount of public policy can be very helpful. Um, but the work that, uh, the intention is getting to a place where the information about these substances and the potential effect in a therapeutic context make the case by itself. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's really sort of how I'm thinking about it. Yeah. And what is the, you mentioned Mass General. What is the work that you're doing with them? So Massachusetts General Hospital is Harvard Medical School's primary teaching hospital. And um, it's generally rated sort of the best hospital on the East Coast of the United States. And the psychiatry department there um, has been rated over the last 20, most of the last 20 years as the best psychiatry department in the country. Um, that department and the head of the department, Jerry Rosenbaum, is creating a center for psychedelic research. So you have the center in conjunction with Harvard, um, that is looking into why these medicines work and how to best use them and in what cases for what people. So in that context, I'm, I'm chairing their advisory council, helping launch this, what, what looks like it will be sort of one of the major psychedelic research centers in the world. Wow. To really understand more about the brain and consciousness and specifically addressing mental health issues. Yeah, no, that's, that's exciting. Um, so I, I like going back to talking about like what the word psychedelics mean, means and or the word psychedelic means and the types of drugs it encompasses because I think that people still have an, a misunderstanding about that. So how would you describe it for someone like, I mean, really even myself until recently um, didn't know a lot about this. I, I really thought it was like a that psychedelics were recreational that people took at parties, you know? And so can you, can you talk more about that? Sure. So psychedelic literally means mind manifesting. Um, so things that open your mind. 
Sometimes they're called hallucinogens, which is not actually accurate. Most of them do not create a, a visual hallucination where you're seeing something that isn't there. They may create some, some create some visual effects, but um, so it's really mind manifesting. And it includes a wide range of, of substances that have different mechanisms of action or di different ways that um, they impact the brain and, and impact your uh, ability to heal and to experience. So recreationally, there, there is a lot that's going on and you know, it has been going on for many, many decades. Um, apart from that, in the set and setting, which is sort of the, the word a lot of people in this space use, where you have a mindset that you're working on something and in a setting that is supportive, um, you can see amazing transformation. But, but some of the substances include things like ayahuasca. Some of these are being heavily studied. Some of them are, are not yet being heavily studied. Um, but ayahuasca, um, LSD, psilocybin, and MDMA that we've been talking about, um, 5-MeO-DMT, they're, they're a range, uh, peyote. Uh, they, they've been used for a century. A couple, LSD is chemically synthesized, but as is MDMA. But, but generally, these substances have been used for millennia often by indigenous people in community and in a range of, uh, of rights and community building activities. Mm -hmm. um, so you said that you're, during your speech at Hofstra that people are looking for cures, not symptomatic suppression. Is that what psychedelics give you is more of a cure than like suppression when you think of a lot of the traditional medicines that people take for anxiety and depression right. now? Right. So um, first thing I'd say is that medicines that suppress symptoms are a whole lot better than not being able to suppress the symptoms. Yeah. I mean, I want to have like total you know, respect for that and that's great. Yeah. Um, the hope with psychedelics and what has been demonstrated in a number of studies is the potential for actual uh, complete remission of, of the symptoms. So the symptoms never have to be, do not have to be uh, continually addressed. It isn't, all right, I'll take my two pills of this in the morning or, or one pill in the evening or whatever cocktail I'm on. Yeah. Every rest of my life and hopefully it'll work and sometimes it stops working. So then with help, maybe you'll get something else that'll work. And for 30% of the people, it doesn't work, period. Uh, with psychedelics, for a variety of reasons, you almost get to um, kind of restart and in that restart, you uh, have the potential for sort of no longer suffering from whatever it was that was causing the symptoms to manifest. A couple of examples that, that might help understand this. Um, one is MDMA for PTSD. So MDMA creates this very open, loving, accepting sense. Essentially, you're flooding your, your body with, with your own serotonin. Mm -hmm. uh, in that state, you're able to deal with things that otherwise are too frightening to you to deal with. So one mm -hmm. of the problems in trauma is something horrible happened. Um, you for, basically went into fight, flight, or freeze mode. Your amygdala takes over to save your life, or at least for what it imagines is saving your life. So whatever was happening isn't actually processed into a memory. And whenever you're experiencing it again, you're not remembering it, you're reliving it which is why people who've been traumatized have so much problem dealing with their PTSD. Yeah. Under the influence of MDMA, which can open you, you can relive that experience without being fully triggered and actually have it processed into a terrible, painful memory, but a memory, not something that you're continually reliving. Mm -hmm. uh, that, and so if you're triggered, or maybe you won't be triggered, so what happens with, like, 
what is the circumstances of like something happening again, like a loud noise or something? Do people just not react? Right. You can begin to recognize that as, oh, that's a loud noise. That doesn't yeah. on the blue, my friends, you know, whatever uh, is going to happen. Or just the per because that man across the street is wearing a red sweater, like the person was in whatever horrible, you know, experience I had does not mean that that person is, is here to, to assault me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so that kind of leads me into the next question, which is the default mode network in your brain. So is that what you were just talking about? That's the default mode? The default mode network actually is really interesting. Um, the default mode network is kind of what keeps you efficient. Um, it's that part of your brain. Like as we're, we're speaking here, um, your brain sort of knows, all right, right now what I'm trying to do is understand those sounds to figure out what that person is saying. And it knows what it's trying to do. Um, it makes you capable of dealing with otherwise what would be overwhelming sensory and intellectual input. So it's a great thing to have. The challenge is that it can take over completely and mm -hmm. get out of a loop. So where these substances can be really helpful is getting you out of that loop. Um, think about it almost as, um, I've heard this example before, where uh, if, you're, if you've always been going down a mountain, Yes. Down a mountain. And, you know, you've been doing that same route forever. It's like a many foot deep, uh, great trail, but that's all you know because you can't do anything else. So now imagine what the psychedelic is doing is laying several feet of dry powder on top of that, and it gives you the option of having other uh, experiences or, or finding other routes down. National mm -hmm. is doing a study now on rumination. Rumination is where you're sort of caught in a loop. Um, and it, it's underlying depression, it's underlying OCD and anxiety. I mean, the different kinds of loops, but it's essentially default mode network gone wild. And the hope is that under the effect of, of psilocybin, um, patients who are dealing with uh, treatment-resistant depression may be able to exit that loop. Yeah. I think that, yeah, because I think so much of the darkness with anxiety and depression is that like that treadmill, like not being able to get off of it exactly. and the frustration that is associated with that. So that, I mean, the fact that there's something that, because I think, um, you know, the, the suppression medicines are obviously, like you said, very, very helpful because they decrease your, the feeling of anxiety. Um, at least that's been my, my experience. Um, but just being able to just hop off the treadmill altogether and not be constantly running, I think would be a game changer in so many ways. Sure. And, and the difference in terms of medication is this might be you know, one or two or three times that you're doing this in a medical office you know, under supervision with a therapist with you, or generally now it's a, a two therapist team. Um, and, but it's not a daily pill. So you don't have the ongoing side effects. Uh, so you end up with higher rates of people not suffering without just increasing medicine and all of the ongoing uh, potential side effects and issues that that brings about. Mm -hmm. um, we've talked to, we talked earlier about, you know, some of the trials that are being done regarding psychedelics. Um, I understand trials are happening for more than just depression, but eating disorders, addiction, OCD. Um, can you talk more about this? How does it treat these disorders? 
So the try to, to just be clear, the trials that are going on right now with the FDA and in Europe with the European Medicines Agency are specifically around depression and PTSD. There's okay. a tremendous additional trial being done at universities uh, around the world, at medical centers and universities around the world, um, looking at some of the indications that you were talking about. And it's, you know, it's, it's, fat, it's a range, wide range. Essentially, it's like there's, there's a concept of neuroplasticity. We used to believe that whatever brain cells you had don't change once you're a few years old, period. You know, as you get older, you lose some. But, you know, we've now learned that that's just not true. Your, your brain is continually changing. So you have neurogenesis, which are new neurons being generated, and neuroplasticity, which is changing connections. Psychedelics, for reasons that we're trying to better understand, have a huge impact on neuroplasticity and may be involved with neurogenesis. So it's a total way of dealing with a range of issues, um, you know, including OCD, including anxieties, that otherwise we, we haven't found a good way of dealing with. Mm -hmm. Addiction is fascinating because um, it, it turns out that one of the found that the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous attributes LSD for him actually getting off of alcohol. Wow. Obviously, is an incredible organization. Yeah. So, so many people, but it, he was actually looking in the '60s at adding it to the protocol, you know, into the 12 steps. And his board was just like, "No, no, you can't be substituted." One substance for another, even though you know, one is a, a recurring, ongoing problem, and the other is a, a yeah. you know, time treatment. But um, but people are being helped tremendously um, getting off of uh, opioids um, with a, a plant from Gabon in, in Africa uh, called ibogaine, uh, or the iboga plant, which which produces ibogaine, that has been more effective than anything else in terms of getting people off of. Uh, uh, opioid substances. Wow. Wow. So there's a lot of, and if you think about it, addiction, you know, eating can buy, be either way an addiction. Either, you know, we eat too much, we eat too little, we, you know, whatever. Um, and, you know, it's just another way of, of sort of dealing with entrenched patterns that can be rewired. Yeah. And that anxiety, because it's, it's, you know, I feel yeah. like addiction, OCD is almost, inter, and anxiety are intertwined because you're still on that loop of, you know, probably obsessing about, whatever it is that you're trying not to have alcohol, you know, whatever okay. drug. Yeah. yeah. Interesting in COVID. Um, I've heard the expression, um, the, the COVID 15, in other words, yeah. people are homebound. And, you know, yes. Have a me. That is me. <laughs> so, uh, different people respond differently. I've actually, you know, some friends have like lost 10 or 15 pounds. Those are people I hate, but anyway. <laughs> same, same. <laughs> but, but no, it's just different ways people react to stress. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah, it's, it's changed for me because when I was younger, I would get so stressed that my stomach would be in knots and I wouldn't be able to eat. And now I'm like, ooh, ice cream. And the town I'm from makes really good Tillamook ice cream. So I'm like... <laughs> that's that's been a favorite of mine during you know covid so i've definitely had the the covid 15 so i can understand that well, the studies ice cream increases your immunity to not having ice cream <laughs> well then i'll keep eating ice cream <laughs> um so speaking of covid 15 um transitioning to covid 19 has that impacted <laughs> has that impacted uh clinical trials 
So it's a difficult time. I yeah. mean, there are no clinical trials with, with uh, in-person patients being done uh, right now um, related to psychedelics. So temporarily, those trials, uh, they're, they're, occasionally there's some ongoing interaction with therapists, but um, the actual trials administering medicine and things are, are on hold right now. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Um, so how is that, do you feel like this is, I mean, what does that look like for funding and, and everything else? What, like, how, how has that shaped sure. your way forward? So it's, it's kind of an interesting mixed situation. I mean, you know, yes, if you're set up to run trials and you're not running them, there are some costs that continue to be incurred. And um, from a uh, donor standpoint, because a lot of the work that I do is, is philanthropically supported, it's, it's challenging. I mean, you know, people have um, you know, either lost money or concerned about losing money, uh, so therefore they have less to give, uh, or they are putting priority, which is very understandable, on COVID-related issues, which are the immediate urgent, or they're involved with organizations that, for whatever reason, they've been supporting for a long time and are having problems. So what they want to do is, is help support those that they to survive. Mm -hmm. uh, those are the negatives. On the positive, on the positive from the standpoint of you know funding and importance, there's an increasing emphasis on mental health and on the mental health effects this is having. Everything from you know the sense of isolation to uncertainty to lack of control, which I think ultimately will tremendously uh, accelerate interest in dealing with mental health issues and to the extent psychedelics are the most promising uh, avenue at this point um, will, will be helpful there. So yeah. term challenging. Um, things are going forward. Last week, over $100 million was raised uh, by two for-profit companies in the psychedelic space. Uh, wow. So, you know, th there's, there's money there, but it's, it's more challenging than it was certainly a couple months ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I it think that, yeah. Probably. Yeah challenges with so many different things. So I think in the long term, this could potentially be very helpful in what is inevitably, be, inevitably going to be a crisis in this country with mental health um, after we recover from this. But so I, we talked a little bit about um, veteran, like how this has helped with veterans. And I actually have a friend who is close to the, the Navy SEAL community. And in doing research for this podcast, this person said that psychedelic use has been really life-changing for, for, for many members of this community um, who have been exposed to decades-long wars and the severe trauma that happens with multiple deployments. Um, of course, the people that I know, it was supervised by a doctor, there were care teams, and you know, it was done all properly and everything like that. But um, I mean, for this, for this population, um, you know, for veteran use and service members, uh, the research, is that part of your motivation behind this because you see how it has changed the lives of service members? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the whole concept that 22 veterans a day are killing themselves is just so unacceptable. Um, it, it, it's done something really interesting. So uh, my, my past work before this has all been all about bridge building. You know, people across different sides of uh, geopolitical divides and things. So it has been really striking in, in terms of supporting and the work being done around the potential for psychedelic-assisted therapies. It's been very, very much of a bridge. 
Um, the organization that's doing the most work around PTSD is called MAPS, or the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And their funders range from George Soros, you know, on the left, to Rebecca Mercer of Cambridge Analytica on, you know, I don't like left and right, but whatever. Yeah. They probably don't have a lot of other things that they agree on. Yeah. Um, and yet, because this is very important for, for veteran issues, um, you know, you're getting support across the aisle or across the, the political spectrum. In terms of the work that is being done with Special Forces and, and with SEALs, I actually have been speaking with a number of groups over the last week or so, it just so happens to be that way. Um, some of them have created, so these treatments are not yet, other than in a um, study setting, are not yet legally available in the United States or in much of the world. Certain countries allow certain substances. So, for example, the SEAL community, there are a number of few organizations that are supporting work bringing SEALs to certified clinics in Mexico um, where they can get this treatment under medical care. And uh, you know, every one of them will tell you how amazingly life-changing it is. And it's really sort of... Um, you know, striking both in terms of, uh, you know, what they have been through to get to this point, but also in terms of legitimizing the, the use of the, you know, this work. I mean, the Navy SEALs are sort of like, I mean, Rangers can argue they're better, whatever, but, you know, are yeah. absolute elite. Yes, of, absolutely. Of the military. Um, and the fact that this is being used by that group, um, not, not officially by the SEALs, but you know, by, by a bunch of SEAL veterans who are you know, working through organizations um, is really striking and certainly suggests that this is not uh, you know, a dangerous, illicit substance that can't help humans. Yeah. There's one number that I just thought of, though, that I meant to, you know, to, so the SEALs and you know, the, the 22 um, veterans a day, globally, every 40 seconds, someone takes their life from suicide. Wow. It's just, you know, and there are usually like 20 attempts before, you know, a quote, successful suicide. So it's, it's just like we are in such an epidemic. Yeah. And helping the SEAL community and special forces and the military in general is super important, um, as are survivors of sexual assaults who are also been through their own trauma or climate issues or, or whatever else. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like from kind of my understanding is that it's like, for the SEAL population it, and the veteran population, it's like this has kind of been an avenue of last resort. Like psychedelics, you know, I think when people think of it and then they try it and it's so life-changing that they're trying to get other veterans to do it too. And, you know, these organizations, like you said, going to, you know, different areas, Mexico and South America. Um, but I think if anything... If, that, if that's not a reason to kind of move the policy forward and change laws regarding this, I don't, you know, I don't know what is, you know. Agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so part of really what sparked me wanting to interview you, well, th I mean, there's a number of reasons, but there was a great segment on 60 Minutes about psychedelics. And I heard about um, that John Hopkins, I read... I believe an article and then I think they talked about it in 60 minutes. I, I might be getting my wires crossed. Both happened. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, it, it does seem like your work is working because 
bigger news outlets are talking about this. Um, uh, you know, the, like the Johns Hopkins, they created the Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research. Their scientists have shown that psychedelics have real potential as medicine, and the new center will explore that potential. Um, and so that's big. That's a very prominent institution in the United States that I, you know, that a lot of people know about, like in Harvard as well. Um, yeah, I mean, it's great. It's, it's, you know, Hopkins, which you know, recently was funded with a few generous contributions that are really launching that. Uh, but NYU, I mean, I just said Harvard, Columbia, Mount Sinai Hospital, UCLA, UCS. I mean, it's, it's becoming more and more mainstream. And, and again, it's across the political spectrum. The Medical University of South Carolina, which is generally sort of not a left-leaning state, um, they're also, they've launched a center because, you know, uh, they've determined that this is where the future of mental health will be. So they want to make sure that their graduates are trained. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that, I mean, are the pharmaceutical companies latching onto this or are they like, how is, how is that relationship? So right now, there, you know, there's nonprofit work being done, research work being done at, at universities and, and medical centers, and for-profit organizations. And you know, they're, they're all kind of coexisting. The larger pharma companies are not yet engaged in the space. My guess is they're sort of watching, and then we will, you know, one doesn't know for sure, but you know, we'll make acquisitions when it, there are approved medicines that can be used. The model is very different, though. And it'll be interesting to see sort of how it all plays out. I mean, a pharmaceutical model generally is take this pill every day and, you know, we'll have great recurring revenue. We'll be helping. Uh, I'm not, you know, grateful for medicines that are produced. Um, I mean, there may be some flaws in the system, but definitely, you know, very grateful for medicines produced. But um, this is different. This is something that has a huge service component. I mean, your largest costs are the therapists there. Yeah. The treatment center, you know, the medicine is, is a cost. You know, and you have a few administrations and then you're all done selling medicine to that patient. In some situations, you may need some recurring something, but it certainly isn't the recurring X pills a day model. Yeah. So it's almost a new paradigm. One of the things I'm very involved with is working with insurers and other third-party payers to make sure that this becomes widely available to people that need it um, when it becomes legally available because uh, that's really important and huge parts of the population um, can be utilizing these treatments and it's very, very important that they that there is medical reimbursement available for it. Yeah, and access. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think that there's, there's still a lot of mystery. So for listeners, kind of pulling back the curtain on the actual treatment of receiving this. So like psilocybin, use that as an example. So if a patient is taking that in a clinical trial, can you walk me through the process of how they would take it so people understand that? So um, what would generally happen is, and I'll kind of meld them all because okay. some different protocols, but um, you are working with generally at this point, two therapists. Um, and often it's a male, female diet, just to ensure safety as well as additional support. Um, you'll have several meetings with those therapists beforehand. So that you under, so they, so you're building a patient trust relationship, 
doctor-patient trust relationship, which is really important. So they're able to sort of discern, no, is this a good idea or, or not? Um, and so that you are fully prepared for what the experience, or as fully prepared as you can be for an, an ineffable or undescribable experience. Um, then the day of the administration of the dosing, um, you'll go in, you'll be in a room, generally uh, you're wearing eye shades, uh, headphones, and you're lying on a comfortable surface, comfortable bed or, or couch. There's a lot of effort to, to make it feel as warm and comfortable and not doctor office-like as possible. Um, and you have your therapist there through the, the entire session, which depending on substance could be four to six hours roughly. Afterwards, um, you'll have um, integration or additional sessions where you're processing. And during the session, you're encouraged to, um, when things come up that might be concerning or frightening or whatever, to, to go through them rather than running away from them. Questions mm -hmm. like, you know, if you envisioning a dragon coming after you, you know, don't run, sort of go in and see things through the dragon's eyes. Yeah. Awesome. So what are, what are some of the main takeaways that you want people to know who are listening to this podcast to know about psychedelics? So I think probably most important is that they have huge potential. You know, we, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. You know, they have huge potential, but are not yet, you know, they're not yet legal. They're not yet at a place where they are um, available. And there are a lot of unknowns. So I get very nervous when it's like magic bullet or panacea or whatever. But they do. In, all, in many of the trials that they've been in, they're showing way off the charts positive results. So I think that the first thing that I would absolutely want people to know is that there is huge potential and we should be investing a lot of resources. There are current, there's currently zero government funding for any of this. Oh, wow. Um, makes no sense. So the VA um, doesn't have funding to study what may be the best answer to one of the biggest problems the VA is facing, which is PTSD. Um, so money in the space is, is incredibly important. Um, they're powerful substances, so they need to be used responsibly. And all the work I'm doing that we've been talking about is in a medical context. Um, we're, we're not, you know, so within that context, um, there, there is this potential and the importance of, of doing studies. And not to get too far ahead of ourselves, I think would be another important message there that, um, you know, potential is great, but let's actually figure out what's going on. Um, because what we don't want to have happen is in another 60s, 1960s, where you end up then with decades of prohibition. And, yeah. and it's in prohibition sort of worked the same way with psychedelics as it did with, with alcohol back when, you know, it was illegal. Um, it, it doesn't work. Uh, and so the, the question really becomes sort of how do you uh, create a society in which this can, these can be successfully integrated into, uh, into use. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This is just such an interesting topic to me because I think that it offers a lot of hope for a lot of people who suffer from, you know, different conditions. And like I mentioned, especially the veteran population. Um, my dad's a veteran. I worked for the military health system for a number of years and, you know, just seeing our service members come home from war um, and, and the after effects of that. So that is, you know, definitely one of the reasons why I think that this is just a really promising um, group of drugs. So thank you so much for doing this interview.
you so much. Yes. Um, you can find Dick Simon at DickSimon.com. He has a great website, a great speech that he gave at Hofstra University, um, all about psychedelic research and its history and all of that that I uh, informed me for this interview today. Um, thank you for joining another episode of Tall Hungry Girl Talks. Um, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and visit my website at tallhungrygirl.com. Thank you. Thanks so much. <laughs>